sermon text this morning comes from Acts chapter 5, or we'll finish up chapter 5 this morning. If you would, go ahead and turn there. Uh, we are continuing our series that God is on a mission. Mission this morning with that of the mission of man. Acts chapter 5, if you don't have your copy of God's Word, you'll find it printed in your bulletin. Starting in verse 17, what I'm about to read to you is God's word. The high priest rose up, and all who were with him, that is, the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach Now when the high priest came and those who were with him, they called together the council and all the senate of Israel and sent to the prison to have them brought. But when the officers came, they did not find them in the prison. So they returned and reported, we found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now when the captain of the temple and the chief priest heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what this would come to and someone came and told them look the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people then the captain with the officers went and brought them not by force for they were afraid of being stoned by the people and when they had brought them they set them before the council and the high priest questioned them saying we strictly charged you not to teach in the name yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed, by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill him. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to them, Men of Israel, take care of what you are about to do with these men. For before these days, Thutis rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone, for if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice. And when they had called into the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. Thus far in God's holy and errant and fallible word, let's pray and ask that he might bless the reading the hearing, the teaching of it this morning. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we come before you, 
overwhelmed by your grace to us. And we ask now that you would be merciful and gracious in sending your spirit again afresh and anew to unclog ears, open eyes, soften hearts, that we might be attuned and alert to what your word says and be changed and transformed by it, by your grace, by your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. So the idea of contrast, it's, it's, we're looking at this morning, and, and if we're honest, it brings up some uneasy feelings because contrast is two very starkly differing ideas that are concepts that might oppose one another. Maybe you've had to have a, a procedure done where you've had to drink this chalky substance, it's one of my favorite things I've ever done. You drink that beforehand, and when you have the procedure, the test, the imaging done, that somehow, I don't know how, it provides a stark contrast to what is normal and what is not. And from there, it helps them go through what the, what the, the recommendations of the doctor are, what's the procedures, what are the next steps. But what do you do, though, when you find contrast in Scripture? Not saying Scripture is not right, but what do you do when you find two very opposing ideas in Scripture? How are we to act? How are we to think about that? Because that's what we're seeing this morning between the apostles and the high priest and the Jewish council. A contrast. And as we think about that, in terms of our series theme, God is on a mission, I want us to see this, that there will be contrast between God's mission and man's mission. There will be a stark difference in the purposes of man versus the purposes and desires of God for his people and for his, his mission. How do we handle this contrast? Well, let's consider this contrast as we let's consider this as we think of the contrast in three different ways contrast of power the contrast of jesus the contrast of joy that's where we're headed this morning that god's mission naturally provides contrast with the world and we see that contrast here with regards to power jesus and joy so let's first start with the contrast of power we see that in verses 17 through 29 if you look there in verse 17 we meet again the high priest a high priest who Peter and John have already received threats from just two chapters prior in chapter 3. Now we meet the rest of the leadership. We see who else is with the high priest. All who are with him, that is, the party of Sadducees. It's a party, we might call it a sect or a school within Judaism. Uh, the Sadducees, they were more politically minded than they were focused on religion. In fact, they denied such things as miraculous supernatural things or occurrences. So something like a resurrection, they would find absolutely foolish. They're primarily a political party that took shape within Jewish culture. And they craved power and they had a majority control over the council at this time. And we see in the beginning of verse 17... A high priest, and he is rising up, rising up in anger. Angry about what? Well, let's get a bit of context. If you look at the previous verses, primarily verses 12 through 16, Luke gives us a summary statement of what is going on in the ministry of the apostles. Look there for a moment. There were many signs and wonders done among the hands of the apostles. We see multitudes are believing and being added to the numbers that believe in the Lord. People are bringing out their sick from all around Jerusalem. It's not just in Jerusalem. It's, it's getting further than that. So that even the very shadow of Peter might fall on those that are laying in the streets and that they might be healed. We saw that these Jesus followers, they are growing. They are becoming what... Luke finally uses the word ecclesia, a church. So people are listening, they're joining, they're believing in their message. 
about Jesus. All this is being done in the name of Jesus. Through the power of the Spirit, which they had prayed would come upon them boldly. And all this was being done after the high priest had forbidden it. Which causes the high priest to arise. We are to get his irritation. Rising up to deal with this group that he has rejected his authority, that have rejected his authority and commands, and yet they're having success. He rises and he is filled with what? Jealousy. His power and authority being challenged causes a jealousy to stir within him, so much so that he orders the arrest of the apostles. Notice in verse 18 that the arrest is done in the most public way possible a public display to arrest and bring these men in to face the council. And the idea here is that the high priest wants all to see this is the outcome that will happen to you if you follow Peter and his merry men who believe in Jesus. Prison. So we see the contrast drastically of the power highlighted here in verses 19 through 21. Just look there. We see God's power on display along with the high priest and Sadducees and councils powerlessness. One man says that in these verses we see the ultimate cosmic overruling by the sovereign God. Just consider now the angels' commands that are given to the apostles after opening the doors. Notice multiple doors. So we see there are multiple people. There are lots of people that can't just fit in one cell. They have to have multiple. And what are his commands? First, go. Go where? Go to the temple. Go to the place where they claim to be righteous and show them the power of your God and what he has done by releasing you from such a public arrest. And then do what? Keep proclaiming the words of this life. That's an interesting phrase, the words of this life. It's a bit weird. Life is capitalized. What exactly is that summarizing? Well, it's a summary statement. It's a reference uh, to the life made possible only by the saving work of Jesus. Notice in Acts 3, he calls Jesus the author of life. Later on, the work of Jesus is called the source of eternal life. And so we see the point is this. Go and proclaim the news, the good news of Jesus, who is the way, the truth, and the life. Go proclaim the good news that brings life. Go and proclaim that in the temple with the same boldness that I provided to you through the power of the Holy Spirit. Quite a command. And what's incredible is that their escape goes unnoticed. If you look at the second half of verse 21, we see that the high priest and the Sadducees that were with him called together the whole council and all of Senate of the people of Israel. This is like uh, rounding up every member of Congress, both House and Senate, and we're going to get that one thing done. Except one little problem. The very thing you brought everyone together to accomplish can't be accomplished because you lost the prisoners. Verse 22, when the, when the officers came, they did not find them in the prison. Oops. And so they returned and reported this. We found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. All the security measures that were put in place. And they're very good at these things. The locks, the armed guards. The Greek literally says the jail was being closed with all security. None of that seemed to work. Again, it points to this contrast of who really has power here. 
The reaction of the high priest is found in verse 24. They are greatly perplexed. They had no idea how or why this happened, and it leaves them wondering what the result of this will be for them. What will become of their power and authority in the community, especially when the apostles end up where? But in the temple, in the very place they were arrested just the day before for doing the exact same thing, and now they're doing it again. Consider verse 26. As the call is made to rearrest the apostles, it says, The captain with the officers went and brought them, not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. That's actually a really incredible statement. Because the captain and the guard are known through various writings to be a very ruthless group of, of enforcers. They were known in that time to carry clubs, and as they arrested people, they would beat them down and bring them to the jails as a public show of force. Yet this ruthless group, they're terrified. Not just of the God who freed these men, no, of the crowds who had gathered. These crowds who have a better understanding of who these men are and the God they serve than the high priests and council in the Senate. And there are two moments of Jesus' ministry and words that stand out as parallels to this moment. In, in Mark 13, Jesus says, Be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils. You will be beaten in synagogues. You will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And then in Luke 22, as the chiefs and high priests, they plot to kill Jesus. Why did they do this? Why were they plotting to do it? Luke 22, verse 2, they feared the people. They feared the people Jesus was ministering and teaching to about the kingdom of God. And such parallels remind us that the cost paid for following Jesus, it's nothing new. And it's very real. And if you were with us last week, listening to our missionary partners who worked in China but have now been kicked out of China and are working now with adults who are Chinese adults, you'll know and remember that the cost of following Jesus is just as stark and daunting now as it was then. And yet, they realize that the command to follow the call, to teach and proclaim the good news of Jesus is worth it. It is how the kingdom will grow. It is a trust in God's power. Notice the last verses here, 27 through 29, the response and accusation of the whole council. We strictly charged you not to teach in this name. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. As you read that charge of the apostles, do you notice anything missing? Hey, you forgot to mention they escaped from prison. I wonder why they forgot to mention it. Maybe it was just too embarrassing. But the main complaint, again, is what we saw earlier in chapter 3. You disobeyed orders to not teach in his name. And by teaching in his name, what have the apostles done? I love this in verse 28. They have filled Jerusalem. Filled it with their teachings of Jesus. And part of that teaching is that Jesus was killed by Jewish leaders handing him over to be crucified. Didn't we order you to stop this? And accusing us? And notice Peter's response in verse 29. We must obey God rather than men. Now this is the beginning of Peter's response, but again it shows us a contrast of whose power is really in control. 
that who is really powerful, who they must fear and obey with their lives. And it isn't the high priests, it isn't the council, but Yahweh. Now when we read verse 21 and 29, it makes us wonder how we might respond. Would, would I have such boldness as Peter and the apostles? And here, here's what I want us to see as we look at verse 29, is that this obedience it's part of the learning process of Peter. It's been part of the learning process of John and the rest of the apostles and disciples. And, and I say that because it, we need to think contextually about this. Uh, think about Acts, but then think about Luke's gospel as well. And think of the other gospels. What do we see the apostles and disciples doing throughout Jesus' ministry? Especially Peter, the one who we see is so bold in Acts. They put their foot in their mouth time after time after time, do they not? They fail to obey Jesus. They fail to trust Jesus. They actually doubt him. It takes years of failure and years of repentance and learning at the very feet of Jesus to get to this point. And yet, even before that, they are filled with the Holy Spirit that comes upon them, it says, with boldness so they can begin their ministry. Y'all, the truth is, we fail all the time to obey God rather than men. And when that happens, what are we to do? The very same thing that the apostles and disciples of Jesus did when he was with them to confess our struggles, to turn to him, and learn through the pardoning grace of Jesus to live for him and obey him. And so the question here this morning is, where do you need to grow in your obedience to God this morning? Where do you need to grow? Where do you need to trust more in his power instead of the power of man? While Peter's response begins with this contrast of, of real power, who has real power, it continues with a contrast about who they believe Jesus to be. And the main difference is this. Believers of the gospel believe Jesus really was the Messiah. He was the God-man. He was the redeemer of the world. Peter makes this clear in verses 30 through 32. Who is Jesus? Verse 30, he is the resurrected Messiah. And not only did God raise him, but Peter goes further saying he was risen from death that y'all administered to him. By killing him on a tree. Now Peter goes on in verse 31 to describe Jesus as this exalted one who sits at the right hand of God. A position of power and prestige. As he sits at the right hand, he leads as the Savior who delivers his people from life to death. How does he do this? He delivers people. He gives them repentance to Israel and he forgives sins. That's who Jesus is. And in verse 32, he makes this clear, that this is not just my followers who believe this. This is actually attested to by someone else. The Holy Spirit, the Spirit of the living God, the breath of God Israel believes and speaks of in the Old Testament. That very Spirit attests to this as well. And those who obey him have experienced this. That's who Peter says Jesus is. What about the high priest and council? Who do they, how do they view Jesus well, we can take what Peter says and make some connections, and we see that they viewed Jesus with great fear. He was a powerful man. First, he was one who was so powerful and they were so afraid of that they actually plot to kill him, trading 30 pieces of silver to Judas so they might find and arrest him. Why? 
Well, Luke, again, remember verse, chapter 22, verse 2, they were afraid. They feared Jesus. They feared his teachings. They feared his ministry to the people that they had rejected and cast off. They feared the power that was behind the healing and teaching. They viewed Jesus as a threat to their power. And because they feared Jesus' teaching that he was the Messiah, this exalted figure of the Old Testament, what did they do but give him the death of humiliation? Deuteronomy 21 says, If a man has committed a crime punishable by death, and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day. Why? For a hanged man is cursed by God. Do you see the contrast of who they think Jesus is and what he is and what he deserves? One group thinks thinks Jesus is exalted and the risen Son of God who forgives sins, who has the power of the Holy Spirit attesting to his life, death, and resurrection. And the other group thinks he is merely a threat to their power, and so they give him this ironic death of a cursed criminal. Do you see one is acting out of a devout love of who they believe Jesus to be? The other one is acting out of a devout fear of who Jesus is to them. Here's a real irony in Peter's speech, is that their blind hatred for Jesus and for all of those connected with him, like Peter and James and John and the apostles, their blind hatred actually clouds their minds and their hearts to rightly discern the imitation and blessing that Peter is offering them right here in these verses. Do you see that imitation? That Jesus is no threat to the nation as the high priest fear? No, what does he actually bring? What can he bring to Israel? He can give repentance to Israel. He can forgive sins in a way that they have been waiting for. That Jesus brings repentance and salvation and forgiveness to Israel. He brings blessing. That's what he offers to those who trust in him, even those who have put him to death on a cross. That Christ indeed did redeem us from the curse of law by becoming a curse for us. He had brought blessing, forgiveness, and salvation. That, Peter says, is why we follow him. That's why we obey him. We believe he is who he says he is, that he is God. And yet they're blind to it. Here's what I want us to see this morning is that who you understand Jesus to be will indeed influence your whole life. If he is a threat to your power and authority and autonomy, like he was to the high priest and the council, you live with a fear that blinds your discernment. You will live with a fear that any submission to the truths of Scripture is an attack on your autonomy. And so to to just admit that you are a sinner in need of redemption that can't be done by yourself, it can't be done in your power, that takes away your power. You see? Just consider this, the idea Peter is proclaiming in his speech, it is that the high priest and the council, they need to repent for their role in Jesus' death and their sin of autonomy and self-rule and that, that, that idol in their lives to accept this and to accept the Holy Spirit's testimony as true means that they were complicit in the murder of God. And they can't abide by that. And so they are blind and will never believe who Jesus and his apostles claim him to be. 
For those who refuse to confess their need of a deliverer, the same fear exists for them too. You end up with this devout fear of Jesus. Just like the high priest. That Jesus becomes a threat to your livelihood, to what you think is satisfying, to what you believe you get your joy out of. He presents a threat to your power. But if Jesus is who Peter declares him to be, then there is no one else in the world worth living and dying for. For he is the only one who can forgive and redeem and sustain and deliver us into glory. How does the whole council and senate of Israel respond to such a declaration and invitation? Because their hearts are hardened, they're blind, because of their rage, not well. Look at verse 33. They're enraged and they want to kill him. Literally it says, they want to split the apostles open in rage. That's a little graphic. And they're doomed to death except for a man named Gamaliel steps in. Now verse 34 introduces us to Gamaliel. He is a Pharisee on the council. Verse 34 also tells us a bit of background. He's a teacher of the law who is respected by all the people. Some more background info. First, he's a Pharisee, uh, which means that he actually believes in things like the resurrection. His pharisaical belief would mean that he was more pious than politically driven, and he was an expert in the law. And Jewish writings like the Mishnah actually refer to him highly. They call him a rabbin, a highly respected rabbi. And it says of him, since Rabbin Gamaliel, the elder, died, there has been no more reverence for the law. And purity and abstinence died out at the same time. That's quite the standard. That's quite the endorsement of Gamaliel. And so he stands up and says to the council, says to the council essentially this, if this is a cult, let it burn itself out. This cult leader is dead, it's going to die, right? They always do. It happened the other two times, it's going to happen now. But if it doesn't, note what he says in verses 37 and 38. Stay away from these men and let them alone, for this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. One writer says Gamaliel's point about not being able to stop the apostles has been described as very sound, pharisaic teaching. That God is indeed over all and needs no help from men for the fulfillment of his purposes. That all men must do is just obey and leave the issue to him. But that kind of teaching, I want you to see, is actually closer to fatalism than a truly biblical view of the way God works in his world. And the way he expects people to respond to the unfolding of events. He's not telling the council to consider the claims in light of the truth of scripture. He's saying, no, let it be what will be, will be. Let God judge whatever comes to pass. Those are not words to live by. But what we can take what he said and make a certain application, and that, that is this, that the truth of the gospel can't be stopped. That if the apostolic plan and method of achieving it is of human origin, it would fail, and it hasn't. It will fail, just as the movements mentioned in verses 36 and 37 failed. But if it's from God, it will succeed. And as Gamaliel has said, you will not be able to stop these men. And guess what? The high priests were not able to stop 
these men. And later on, Rome was not able to stop the message of the gospel. And again, if you were with us last week, you heard of horrible things happening to our brothers and sisters in China. And you know what those men suffering in prison have realized, and they cherish and hold dear, that their hope and truth is from God, and no government can stop the powder keg of growth that is happening there. And the very same thing is true of us as well. I want you to think of that both broadly and specifically. First, broadly. I mean, there seems to be times during, during the week where we read things and we think, man, that's really going to destroy Christianity in America. That's going to really hinder the message of Jesus. Maybe, maybe it will bring about some actual persecution and difficulty for the first time in a long time in the U.S. Christian church. And maybe that's a good thing. Maybe it's a refining moment. But what was said 2,000 years ago of believers' proclamations is true even today. If it is from God, there is no stopping it. Do we believe that? That's broadly. What about personally? Have you ever experienced those moments where you struggle to wrap your head around how such a God could love you? How he could actually redeem you from your past? If the scriptures are merely man's words, it will fail, and you are doomed. But if it is true, and it is, it won't fail, and it hasn't failed. And so in these moments of doubt and sorrow, of apathy, we can cling to the scriptures and the truths that they proclaim and know that it is real, it is powerful, they are faithful, they are life-giving, and there is no person on earth that can stop that truth from its continuing path to pierce our souls and bring about redemption. There's no stopping it. There's nothing on earth that can keep the gospel away from God's children. Let's close this morning by looking at the contrast of joy. And we see it in our last few verses, 40 through 42. And we start in verse 40 where the apostles are brought back to the room. Gamaliel has dismissed them so he could have his talk. Now he brings them back and and they're simply beaten and charged not to speak in the name of Jesus ever again and dismissed. Well, we know that telling them not to speak in the name of Jesus again, it's not going to work. And so the seriousness of the council is shown by the addition of a beating. This would be a lashing of 40 lashes minus one. It's it's prescribed in the book of Deuteronomy, and you'd be whipped with a whip that had three strands going from it. And as you whip, it would reach into your chest and your back and rip the flesh off. A lashing would be capable of killing some people uh, from blood loss. Many would indeed lose consciousness from the pain. And the thought is this. This will show the apostles we mean business. And those who follow them, we mean business. This will shame them, those marks of shame. And that, they thought, would be effective because in this culture, it is very shame and honor-based. Perhaps the marks of the lash will be enough to shame them into submission. And guess what? It backfires. Look at verse 41. Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing. Rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. They left rejoicing why they were found worthy of suffering for Jesus' sake. What did Jesus teach in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5? 
Jesus says, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven for so they persecuted the prophets who are before you. You see that for the the disciples and even for us, to experience a glimpse of the hatred and vile that the Lord Jesus experienced, it is a privilege. Jesus goes as far as to say it is a blessing. Look at how the apostles respond after the beating. Verse 42, every day, every single day in the temple and from house to house, they've expanded. They did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. This last verse is like the pinnacle thus far in the book of Acts. It's the culmination point where they started from. Remember, they started afraid and waiting for the Spirit to descend upon them to do what? To proclaim news of the kingdom of God. Then it happened. And guess what now? They are beaten just like their Savior, and it doesn't deter them. In fact, it spurns them on even further with joy so that every day they go to all types of places teaching and preaching and the word we get evangelize from the good news of the gospel good news euangelion it's used for the very first time here in luke's writings in that word preaching in verse 42 and it's a word that he's going to start repeating over and over again in the following chapters What joy they have. When in man's view, it should bring about such despair and resentment. Yet they're filled with joy. And so as we end, let me leave you with this. Is that we are a comfortable people who find joy, maybe not in the right things. And I say that as someone who loves creature comforts. I love them. What happens, though, when those things bring us more joy than the thought of the gospel? What happens when those things bring us more satisfaction than our relationship with the Lord? And what happens when the teaching and preaching of Jesus, or more likely the living out of the gospel, comes into conflict with what we find our joy in? If you read the New Testament, you can't help but notice there's a connection between living out the new life you have in Christ and suffering. Just consider what Peter and Paul write. Peter writes, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings so that you may also rejoice and be glad when glory is revealed. And then hear hear Paul from Romans. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Do you see there that the Christian life implies suffering, but suffering brings about joy because that joy is found in that you are united and sharing with Jesus in that moment. And yet, suffering for us often brings about the loss of joy. Because when we suffer, we consider what has been lost from us, for us. But we see through the scriptures that the reality is this. What has been gained in suffering? We are united with Christ. 
we are given the privilege of experiencing in his sufferings. We get to share in that privilege with Jesus and with all the saints that have gone before us and that he is with us in the midst of that. As we suffer, we're able to rejoice in the sovereign mercy that sustains us in the midst. As we suffer, as we go through that, we are able to rejoice as we can see how God uses even that for his kingdom to grow. What a blessing. So the question we then have to ask is, what truly brings us ultimate joy? I think again of hearing from our friends who work with those in China and the suffering they experienced because they were put in prison. Do you remember how he described his friends who were in prison? Not just as hopeful, but even joyful at the work of what God was doing in China. And that the Lord was gracious enough to use their ministry and even their imprisonment for the furthering of his kingdom in Asia. Y'all, not all of us are called to be missionaries or work in China or India. Maybe some of you are. But what are we called to do? To live our lives as believers in a contrast to the rest of the world. And that contrast is simply this. It declares where our hope is. It declares where our salvation comes from. It declares who is really powerful in our lives, who has our allegiance, and who gives us joy. May the Lord give us strength and grace to live for him, and that that would indeed be our true joy. Let's pray. Lord, Heavenly Father, we come before you and admit that so often our lives are filled with 